0: Welcome to the Being Human Podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world, and other times, like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together.
1: Hello and welcome to the Being Human podcast. I'm Sandy Clark and recently I had the pleasure to host Dr. Ray Owens, a consultant, clinical psychologist and health psychologist with over 30 years of experience working in the UK's NHS. In this episode, we talked about his book. Facing the Storm, which saw its second edition published in September, 2022, and explores how we can cope with life-changing events and recover from major life challenges that we'll all face at some points in our lives. In the book, Ray draws from his expertise in acceptance and commitment therapy, sharing strategies to help us deal with hardships such as bereavement, health problems, the loss of roles or relationships, and other difficult events that might show up. Facing the storm meets the inevitability of tough times head on without sugarcoating the harsh realities all of us experience. At the same time, Ray offers compassionate and supportive guidance on how we can confront these realities, take charge of what we can control and live in a meaningful way in line with what matters most to us. Kicking off our conversation, I asked Ray to share his thoughts on what it means for us to face the storm as we prepared to dive into some of the core themes of his book.
2: I suppose that that phrase, and and and, and it's the basis of a kind of metaphor running through the whole book, uh, is, is pointing towards the idea that, you know, if, if all we did was read self-help books, we'd think that there wasn't a problem that couldn't be solved, there wasn't uh, an issue, that if we did the right thing, nothing bad would ever happen. And actually people's experience of life generally is bad stuff does sometimes happen completely out of our control. Uh, and certainly that was the kind of groups of people I was mostly working with, uh, with people with serious physical illnesses, cancer, cancer, um, terminal illnesses, and more generally in life. So in, in, in wanting to talk about how, what is it that we can do in the face of bad stuff that is definitely gonna happen, we can't prevent the bad stuff happening. This kind of metaphor of facing a storm sort of came through the, the idea that sometimes actually there is a storm heading your way and it'd be great if it wasn't. And there is a storm heading your way and you can't avoid it. And the temptation then is to kind of either yeah, give up, just curl up in a ball. Whereas actually, if we can try and make sense of what's happening, and work out what we need to do and have a disposal of resources for trying to do stuff it doesn't mean that it's going to be all okay it may not be all okay but we are more likely to be able to deal with what's coming and kind of do important stuff in its face
1: when you mentioned there about when we read self-help books sometimes we get this impression that you know what every problem is is we're able to overcome completely, or if we apply these five steps and so on. And and one of the the words that we hear so frequently nowadays is uh, resilience, and quite early in the book, in the first chapter, you you mentioned the, the problem with that word that, you know, to mm-hmm. be resilient, you know, that everything happens for a reason, or, you know, sort of keep calm and carry on, or, you know, this idea that we're bouncing back from things, whereas as you talk in the book throughout this sometimes, storms will come and they can be very heavy and very difficult to deal mm. with. I think when people initially pick up a copy of Facing the Storm, um, they might think that it's a book on how to be uh, more resilient, but it takes a much more sort of nuance and, and compassionate stance throughout the book. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you sort of made that point on resilience in the first chapter and how it can be a problematic term. Yeah,
2: um, I mean, interestingly, I had a conversation with the publisher about whether to even use the word resilience in the subtitle in the second edition. It was in the first edition, and uh, and possibly was was um, nobody was particularly viewing the term as being quite so compact, uh, quite so problematic fifteen years ago when we, were, we were, I was first talking with the publishers about the first edition, and so I did go back to them to the second edition uh, and say there are more debates about this word. You know, should it still be in there. Uh, but I'm glad we decided that it was, because I think, you know, um, at, at the risk of, of reaching for a cliche, there's, there's a question of, of throwing out the baby with the bathwater here. At its core, the concept of resilience actually has important things to say to us about living our lives. So, uh, so as, as you know, and, and from the way you kind of introduced the question, you know, traditionally within broad psychological fields, we've tended to think of This word resilience, meaning like a couple of things, one of which is when you get knocked onto your backside, how can you find a way of picking yourself back up? And the second component of it, which is sometimes also termed things like persistence or grit, is the idea that in the face of ongoing adversity, how can we find ways of still moving in the direction that we were planning to move? And given that life does do stuff to us, I think those are both very, very reasonable uh, questions. And they're things that we do need to pay attention to and can make a difference to how well we experience life given the challenges and unfairnesses of life. I think where the problem comes in actually isn't with that core concept at all. I think the problem comes in with sometimes how the word is used and why it is used. So I think when... People have then ascribed success or failure to deal with difficult circumstances as being entirely down to the individual and how much or how little resilience they have. And if they can't cope with whatever it comes along, somehow that is their lack of resilience. Um, and, and let's give them an injection of resilience and they'll somehow be able to deal with absolutely anything. I think that as a concept, of course, is is, is a bit of a problem. And we go kind of further if we're looking almost slightly more sort of politically but if we're looking at situations where people have been asked to do fundamentally unreasonable and indeed impossible things in in workplaces in society uh, and unreasonable demands are placed on people and then when they inevitably can't live up to them the blame then is put in terms of of, of their resilience. So, you know, great example, and we talk a lot about it in in, in the new edition of the book, is what was happening during COVID a few years ago. And, you know, the level of demand on healthcare staff, I'm sure this is true in all parts of the world, certainly where I was working within the NHS at that point, uh, the level of demand was absolutely kind of immense, uh, as it always is in healthcare. To ask people to do what was being asked to, uh, asked of them at that point, anybody would be really struggling. Anybody would be suffering. It wasn't a lack of resource in terms of personal internal resilience that was the issue there. You know, one of the things we learned early and actually could have told folks anyway is, you know, it is great to have decompression spaces and room for people to talk and meditation zones and things. Those are really useful things to have around. But at the heart of it, you need... People working reasonable length shifts, having enough fluid, having access to toilets, getting the chance to get off, get home. Those are the real determinants of whether people cope or not. And the other stuff comes in off the back of that, but can't compensate for that. Circle back to where we started with this. Resilience kind of isn't a response to people trying to do the impossible. But it is a re. It is always reasonable to say, given the circumstances I find myself in, what gives me the best chance of being able to deal with what's thrown my way?
1: Yeah, and I can imagine for health workers um, across the board, especially when the pandemic just broke out and we didn't really know an awful lot about COVID nineteen at the time, and certainly there was no um, vaccination available early on. People must have been struggling to maintain a sense of optimism when they were trying to sort of prepare for the worst. And there's an interesting concept that you mentioned uh, in the book, which is called um, protective pessimism, preparing for the worst while still sort of working or, or hoping for the best. And But you also warned that you know we need to be careful not to allow pessimism to get the better of us. And I would imagine certainly when you're under so much pressure trying to deal with a health crisis, that can be a bit of a challenge. And I'm just wondering, regardless of the storm that we're facing, um, how can we kind of begin to strike that balance between preparing for the worst um, but still sort of hoping, working toward the best, especially when we're dealing with some kind of major challenge or, or life change? That's, that's a really key question. Even when we know that
2: something bad is about to happen, or something bad is is hitting us, uh okay we've we've talked a bit about covid you know but it could be you know the serious illness it could be the upcoming relation clearly upcoming relationship breakdown or redundancy or you know these are the kinds of examples talked about in the book even when we're facing something that's pretty certainly going to happen of course there's tremendous uncertainty within that about when how much how bad how the how how is this bit going to go how is that bit going to go and and we know that quite apart from the kind of, uh, you know, what might say the core unpleasantness, aversiveness of an experience. The other two big things that determine how stressful they are for people is how unpredictable it is and how uncontrollable it is. So the unpredictability, the uncertainty is a a huge factor in this. Um, And we often don't know exactly how it's gonna go. So this balance between um, aiming for and working towards best possible outcomes, and as you say, being aware that there are many possibilities here of of much much less good outcomes, you know the, the the balancing of them isn't just some sort of theoretical thing. It's kind of practically faces people, and it faces people who are, by definition, all of us. We differ, and 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 you know famously, you know you have some people who tend more towards optimism, tend more towards pessimism, and the. The concept that you that you that you raise there of protective pessimism uh, kind of plays into this. So protective pessimism is that thing where you say, "Okay, I'm going to apply for this job. I quite like the look of this job. I'm sure I'm not going to get it. You know, oh gosh, they've invited me into. You. Oh great, but you know, I'll, you know, I'll do my best, but I'm not going to get it." And that way of people telling themselves they're not going to succeed, they're not going to get the thing they want in order to insulate themselves somewhat from the disappointment if they don't get it. Because for some people, and it's only for some people, you know, if you're telling yourself, yeah, this is it, this is the start of everything, I'm definitely going to get this job, my whole life's going to change from here. And then you don't because, you know, you were one of a dozen well-qualified candidates and they just chose one of the other 11. If you were so convinced it was going to happen, that could be quite a kind of a you know disappointing, crushing experience. So people, so many people do this protective pessimism. And if you follow sports teams, you can tell. You know, you walk into the ground, your mate next to you is convinced it's going to be a glorious win. You're sort of thinking, oh, it's going to be like a disaster. And it's fine. It doesn't matter at that level. Uh, where we do think it can be more of a problem being excessively pessimistic. Uh, you know, sort excessively attached to predictions of poorer outcomes is when the stakes get higher. And I suppose the clearest example is if we're talking about, um, you know, in, in, in a lot of my work over the years, in things like cancer treatments, if if people are absolutely convinced that they're definitely, definitely, the, you know, treatment wouldn't work for them. You know, they will definitely die sooner rather than later. That can move beyond protective pessimism into actually altering the balance of people's decision-making. And when people describe, well, this is actually going to be quite a tough um, treatment regime. If they, if the person actually has convinced themselves, well, I'm going to die anyway, it's not going to work, then kind of rationally, why would they put themselves through it? So protective pessimism in that way, although it's protective in a sort of weak psychological sense, actually ends up with the person not availing themselves of the opportunity of maybe things
1: turning out well because they've already convinced themselves they're definitely going to go badly. When uh you talk about this idea of preparing for the worst bit of yeah. expecting the best uh, you yeah. sort of shift on to introducing in the book uh, the importance of knowing our values when we're really struggling with something that's that's challenging yeah. and and you know thinking about what matters most to us in sort of facing that storm and i suppose when you're in a really difficult situation in life you know you might kind of feel like values and and, and, and knowing what matters most is a kind of luxury for another time while you're feeling like you're in survival mode. Otherwise, you'll kind of lose sight of what matters, which is immediate survival in a sense, or immediately trying to overcome the problem. But you describe values um, in the sense that they can anchor and guide us even when times are tough and we're facing dark hours. And I'm just wondering if you can share some thoughts on the benefits, not just of of knowing what's what's important to us, to, to to discover our values, but also how we can live them and experience those benefits.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I saw this just the other day, and I, I hadn't seen this particular quotation before. So from from one of the Stoic philosophers, you know, back in back in Roman times, uh, I call I call Seneca said, um, and yeah, you know, and, and some people listening to this may, may know his work way better than me. But one of the things he said was, if you don't know what port you're heading towards, there's no such thing as a favorable breeze. So basically saying if you don't know what you're trying to head towards, you you can't take advantage of anything that is going in your favor and you can't work out where you want to steer. And and this is a benefit with with, with values, because values uh, a way of knowing where we want to head and what is the direction of travel that we want so in facing a you know in facing any kind of storm knowing well what is it that we what is it that we want in terms of how we handle this and what we get within it and what we might get beyond it I mean, I mentioned cancer treatment a second ago. Obviously, that's been a huge part of my clinical career. So those examples come to my thought, but also they're quite good examples in one sense that everybody knows that's a really bad deal, and it, you know it's it's, it's really a difficult thing to have, and it brings difficult choices. So it's quite a good metaphor for for other difficult uh, things that we might face in our careers and our personal lives. And one of the sorts of situations I've been very much involved with is people struggling with the rigours of, say, chemotherapy. And sometimes chemotherapy you know, goes very smoothly uh, and it can be very successful. And sometimes people really struggle through it with lots of symptoms and fatigue and nausea and all sorts of things. And, and one of my jobs has often been to see people under those circumstances who are really struggling to continue. And one of the questions I'll often ask them is, uh, which sometimes takes people a bit by surprise, is, well, what are you doing this for? When you chose to do this, when you signed the consent form, and, you know, what what are you doing it for? What are you hoping for? And people quite recently say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? I want to live. Okay. But then the second question is, and say this goes as well as it possibly can, and, and, and you do get to live longer. What do you want to do with that? What do you want that life to be about? So, what is it that you're aiming towards that might help you carry through this adversity? And that, so, you know, what would you do with that extra bit of life? And this isn't like, oh, I'm definitely going to kind of give up everything and climb mountains and things. But it would be, well, oh, you know, I'd love to be like, on holiday with my grandkids. I would love to be walking in the forest of Dean, you know, where I'm living. I would love to, um, you know, get back to painting or whatever. So actually understanding that within those things, now those are individual goals and they might not happen for other reasons. But what is it within those kind of goals that really matters to people? Connection with our families, being part of their lives, appreciating beauty, uh, connecting to nature. When we know those things, we can not only see the adversities of going through the difficult stuff we're doing as part of heading towards them, but we can also build those into our daily lives even right now. So, you know, even in the middle of some big work-related crisis, the connection with nature really matters. It's it's finding those five minutes within the day to go down to the local park, yeah. and like sit under the trees, or just look at the pot plant on your desk, but actually really look at it for two minutes. And not just really look at it for two minutes, but also... Notice, hears me looking at this, connecting with nature. How that leaf grows out differently from that leaf, and that pulls us into the stuff that matters—that we want our lives to be about. That make it worth finding ways of facing
1: these storms. Yeah, it's, it's kind of broadening the scope of what we're seeing and and being present to. It's, it's not being defined by the problem as such, even just for a, for a little while. Nicely said. Nice say, yeah. And and one of the, the things I would imagine that people face when they are dealing with a, a monumental shift in their life circumstances, whether it's health related or otherwise, for example, if you've lost your job or your relationship has has ended, for example, um, one of the things that you explore in the book is uh, decision making and how uncertainties are going to inevitably arise when dealing with, with difficult times in life. And I suppose that many people listening to this will know that disorientating feeling we get when we're overwhelmed by countless thoughts and feelings and and questions that flood us. And I think the way I've described it before in my own experience, it's sort of like plunging into a deep pool or the sea um, in such a way that you don't know which way is up for a few seconds. And how do we begin to deal? With knowing what to do when all of that stuff is going on, um, so that we can sort of at least begin to make sense of what's happening, and then maybe start to move forward, um, with time. That is such a common experience,
2: and I and I really like your metaphor of suddenly find yourself sort of tumbling and upside down, and in, in, in the deep pool and not quite sure which way which way's up, um. And I guess from a sort of psychological point of view, what I'd be encouraging people for us to do is just, you know, a bit of acceptance and self-compassion for the fact that, yeah, absolutely, that is exactly how it is at the moment. And the fact that your mind is overwhelmed with this stuff is, in part, your mind doing its job. You know, there's a lot of things going on in your environment. There's a lot of potential threats. And if what your mind is doing is skittering from one to the other, then it's not a million miles away from our cave person ancestors who, you know, in a situation where they're hearing the roar of a saber-toothed tiger or whatever, is hyper-alert, looking around at everything, imagining danger behind every rock. Um, you know, these are, these are kind of very fundamental parts of a mind, uh, particularly in the early stages of extreme threat. So the first bit is, yeah, of course I'm like this. And of course it feels like this. So not beating ourselves up for being in that situation. And then the transition through into actually there are choices to be made here and they may make a difference. Then sort of shifts us into, okay, even with all this stuff going on, I need to find a way to move forward. Now, if the things we can do that help us to step back, from the churning white water of uh, of, of all these intrusions, uh, that's really helpful. So if people have already got abilities around, you know if they've if they've um, studied, for example, mindfulness and that's something you're very very interested in and, and have written on, on on yourself as well, this idea of kind of like well, you and I will know what we mean by say a settling process. Settling doesn't mean that the bad stuff's all gone away, but that we can see things for what they are and it's not all mixed up and swirling around us. So if we have ways of being able to to settle a little and notice what all these different thoughts and feelings and worries are, then we can move into sort of more almost pragmatic decision and choice-making strategies. Uh, And one of the joys of working in palliative care, which is, you know, uh, care for people with advanced illness who, who might be facing their own death, as a psychologist, has always been that um we get to do kind of proper therapy. We're talking about like the stories and rules that people have from the child, or know they're playing out now when we work on them over weeks and weeks. But a lot of it is about really pragmatic stuff. Like what do I do now. I'm awake all night worrying. What am I going to do when I go back to work? How am I going to explain stuff to people? So it's this lovely shift from the sort of very big and deep stuff to the very pragmatic, what do I do now, what do I do now? And that's a real sort of uh, pleasure in working in that area. And some of what I wanted to bring to this book. So, things like um, how do I make decisions under conditions of uncertainty when there's so many possibilities? Mm. I think it's a really interesting question. I, I did some of my research on that. And the reason I did it on my research is I'm terrible at making decisions. And so, I'm fascinated in how other people seem to make decisions. And particularly when it's not obvious what the right call would be. We've got multiple things, and making no decision is probably about the worst choice. So that's when there are times like, sort of simple strategies can make a can make a big difference. From the very simplest of, well, you know what anybody would say to you: you sit down, and you make a list. You know, you put down a possible benefits column and a possible costs column for each of the things you can think of. And my experience, and most people's experiences, that doesn't give you the answer, but it begins to do something else. It begins to change your relationship to all these factors. You're stepping back, or in this kind of style of psychology, we call defuse from it. So fusion is where you're kind of stuck to the ideas, and you're, as you say, you're swimming around in the middle of them. This kind of defusion helps you just stand back and see them from a little bit of a distance. So that pros and cons thing might not give you the answer, but it begins a process. And if we then begin to pull in other things like, well, other people whose opinions I value, what might they say about this? What things are actually, it's all very well saying, I could do this and could do that, but what's actually within my capacity? What do I actually have the resources to do? So we can sort of look at it in that fairly rational way, but we're still often going to end up just stuck.
1: As you were talking, what came to mind for me was this idea that if we can learn to take a step back and, you know, use the pros and cons list or or even take a few breaths or uh, some kind of pause, it gives us or reminds us of this sense of agency of we have maybe not control over everything, but we have some kind of control, some kind of say on how we're going to deal with things or how we're going to, you know, respond to the situation absolutely
2: absolutely that sense of control is really important and, you, and you're quite right we, one of the defining things of the situations that, that we're talking about in this book is we probably can't control the big picture you know we can't control the fact that the storm's going to hit what's going to happen with this illness the fact that the factory is going to close uh, that we work at so we can't control the big stuff but that doesn't mean we just have to give up all control because a, a sense of no control whatsoever, of complete powerlessness, can really add to our distress and really add to our, um, uh, you know, something we've known about in psychology for years can give, give this state called learned helplessness where we actually end up acting on the assumption that nothing we do makes any difference whatsoever. And so the rational consequence of that is give up, do nothing. And that doesn't work very well. So actually, yeah, recognizing what do I have control over here, and it's a uh, you know it's a uh, uh, it's funny. I was talking to uh, uh, talking about all this kind of stuff to a group of professional sports people the other week, uh, uh, professional women's rugby team, and we got talking about that principle. In they talk about a lot in sports coaching, which is you know you focus on the controllables and. The things that are out of your control are just going to happen, how the press reacts to things, what the crowd does, some of what the opposition does out of your control. But what you can do is you remember your drills, you remember your communication, you do these things. So, yeah, focusing in on the things that are in your control. And even if they're on quite small things, but that's where the values bit comes in as well, because then the values can inform where you're putting your energy So you might not be able to control how the redundancy goes, how the illness goes, but you might be able to control a bit of how you interact with your family and you can choose to be more present and more available or more of this or more of that, more playful, even within the middle of all this with your kids. That doesn't make the storm go away, but it makes you be you in the middle of
1: it. And that makes a difference. Yeah, it's kind of less chance for you to lose yourself. And it's almost like you're rediscovering, you know, what makes life worth living and and, and being around it in the first place. And as you're describing that, there is a nice segue into my next question, which is um, one of my favorite chapters in the book is, is chapter six, which talks about this idea of, of managing normal daily life in the face of whatever storm you're, you're facing. And I think that point is quite important in the sense that it highlights something that we struggle most of us at times to wrap our heads around this point where even when life is tough, the everydayness of it goes on. And, and you mentioned in the book that that's a healthy thing to do, that, you know, that, that life does go on, that it keeps going on around us, mm. regardless of what's happening. And I was thinking about this when I was reading the chapter um, some years ago, I was at the funeral of a, a, a friend's dad and we had just come out of the, the wake service uh, and into the car to come back home and I just happened to notice people all around me who obviously didn't have an idea of, of what had just happened they didn't know the person they didn't know the circumstance and so on and you know they were going about their life just shopping and, and crossing the road and, and playing with their kids and all sorts And just the contrast of that really struck me at the time, the sort of different realities that can exist at the same time, but also that different realities, including your own, you know, sort of coexist and that it's important that we recognize that. And in those tough times that we experience, again, that can be something that's quite difficult to to wrap our heads around because you think, well, no, the world needs to stop so that I can deal with this and then I can move on. But as you've touched on, um, that's mm. possibly not the most healthiest way to, to go about it. But what would you say to someone who feels like they're battling and and, and struggling to reconnect with their everyday life um, while they're going through something quite challenging? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. that there it, it does just sometimes
2: seem weird that the normal stuff goes on while we're in the middle of the biggest of, of, of stuff. And I mean the temptation sometimes, and you do see it in people, is to throw themselves in to other stuff as a way of coping with the emotional turmoil. I mean there's 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 problems with that if we try to use that as a distraction. Because whenever we try and distract from something important, the thing that's important tends to push back really hard to remind us that it's there. Mm-hmm. So getting involved in all the daily life in order just to distract yourself from me. Good work in the very short term tends not to be a good longer-term strategy. The recognition that the rest of normal life is also what life is made of, and that needs our attention and gives us opportunity to have things alongside the pain and the uncertainty and the doubt uh, uh, and, and the worry. The difficulty comes, of course, when, depending on the nature of the, of the storm, that gets in the way of everyday life so it gets in the way of our working life which that's uh, taking up our time so you know we can say well it's really important that you actually you know still if at all possible do stuff that you do for leisure you know do the, the things you do for fun uh because that's a way that we live by some of our values and it gives us maybe contact with other people but the difficulty comes when whatever it is stops you doing that you know it's the illness stops you doing it uh, or you've had to move to somewhere else for very suddenly, or you know, I mean, obviously, all of this is say massively, um, you know, massively bigger the case if you're in a really terrible situation like becoming a refugee suddenly, from a war zone, you know, suddenly all the other stuff stripped away from you in you know, in the face of just this drive forward to try and survive. But for most of us, the daily stuff of being at work, interacting with other people. Is therefore it's a bit of a distraction, but it's also a way of living by our values, and we can learn to deal with some of the additional challenges that come with that. And that's that's kind of part of our work here as well. Uh, is um, so, for instance, you know, people returning to work after a personal tragedy or, or in a difficult time. I know from working with so many people that the thing they dread most is all the conversations. Mm-hmm. Is everybody asking how you are, where you've been? how did it go i'm so sorry about and and often with very good intent and it would be awful if nobody showed any care or interest at all but that prospect of you just holding yourself together enough i mean i suppose i, I believe is a great example of this you're just about holding yourself enough you think you might just be able to cope going back to work and then lots of kind people keep saying oh i'm so sorry to hear how are you and then ah, you know each time kind of breaking down again. Um, And even if it's not like that motivated around asking you this stuff, you you know, a a common one if people have been off sick for a while or been away for another kind of crisis related reason, um, other people might just not be aware of what's gone on for you. And you say, well, where the hell have you been? You were meant to be part of this project team. Hmm. And I haven't seen you in months. And people get kind of caught on the hop. So down to the most like, this stuff you can end up doing with people to be helpful. One of the things I do with people is I prepare them for that. You know, we say, well, okay, that's going to happen. So you need to take control of that situation. And so we end up sort of preparing how a person's going to respond to the likely comments. You often say, some people who you trust and you feel it's important for them to know, you might tell them the full story. Some people you want a one-paragraph version, and some people you want a one-sentence version. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had to be off. Uh, I've been unwell. I needed some treatment, but things are going much better now. Sorry, I've missed stuff on the project. Can you catch me up on this? And so, you you know, you you control what you say and then you take control of the situation and move it off your stuff back onto, onto work territory. And we can talk about it as an idea, but what we don't want is the first time a person tries it to be out there in the real world feeling like they're filling up and stuff. So as weird as it sounds, I get people practicing it in the bathroom mirror at home. You know, actually doing it like it was a script, like you worked for a fast food place and you were asking, did they want fries with that? And say it and say it until some of the emotion comes out of it. You're just ready to say it in the real situation and then you can move forward.
1: It's quite a nice... Uh, thing about the book throughout the chapters where you offer these kind of exercises for people to try and I think they're they're wonderful, wonderfully practical in the sense that you know in some self-help books you can read exercises and they, they sound a bit too far-fetched um, but exercises like these are, are immediately practicable you know uh, this idea of you know think of scenarios where the conversation is going to be difficult or questions that you might get and write different versions, depending on who you're addressing. And I think those kind of exercises are really nice in terms of helping people prepare for those difficult moments. And and you also provide certain sort of vignettes of of stories from people uh, to sort of explain the principles behind some of these uh, exercises that you share. So I think it's it's a really nice way of of providing people with that, that guide in real time. Here's what you can do to start preparing for some of this stuff that's going to come your way. But in, in the same chapter, when you're talking about managing normal, day, uh, normal daily life, you talk about a father whose uh, ambition, whose desire is to uh, teach his son to go sea fishing, um, but he's no longer yeah. in a position where he can do that. And and obviously there's a the frustration and the despair and sadness that, that goes with that um, inability to, to teach his son how to fish. But the way you described the story was that he managed to, um, sort of through working with yourself, able to explore new ways of connecting with the values that underpinned that desire. So he ended up talking about connecting with his son, spending time with his son. Um, and so he thinks about teaching him to play chess instead. But you highlighted a really important point in the mix of that story, which is, that it's important that we don't minimize the pain or grief that comes with change and and loss, or we'll risk minimizing the significance of what's being felt. And I think quite often in in some of the the workshops on ACT that I've given, um, I tell people who are just starting to practice ACT that quite often we can miss out half the model um, because we often jump from cognitive diffusion to to, um, values to committed action. Uh, we don't really spend much time on acceptance, um, present moment contact or, or self as context. And I, I quite like that that bit in the story because it reminds us to sort of be present with whatever pain and suffering is there, that it's important yeah. that we learn to make room for it because it's not going to go anywhere if we try to resist it. And I think just paying the experience sort of affording it that kind of dignity and respect even, it is so important to to let people know that, look, what's happening here, what has happened, um, you, you know, you're, you're no longer able to teach your son how to fish, and that's such a loss, you know, and, and, and that's, that's, that's really difficult, and to sit with that for a time before we can then sort of think about, well, what does matter to you? What's underlying this desire to teach your, your son to fish? Can you say more about striking the balance between being yeah. present to the suffering and exploring different perspectives? Because I think sometimes for me, um, when I started out as a therapist, and, and even now, sometimes I, I might struggle. Um, either I might sit too much with the problem, whether it's with a client or even with myself, yeah. but sometimes I might push too quickly to look for a solution or to work towards something, right? That's push towards change. Ah. So I'm just wondering how do you begin to strike that mm. balance there? I, I lot that's that's such
2: an astute uh, kind of question because it, it is at the core of being able to do this kind of stuff well um in in, in, a, in, in a manner that people need and, and I think you know and I think there are good reasons why people end up kind of particularly early on with any new model sort of sometimes missing missing the bigger picture of it because I think people are very often focused on the bit that is different from what they've done before. And you get very hooked on doing those things. So, you know, oh, this diffusion bit has to be weird. Okay, so I'm really focused on how do I do diffusion? How do I do uh, identifying values and building new action paths? And I think, you know, if people have all sorts of either sort of counselling or psychotherapy or indeed sort of spiritual support traditions, you know, most people have it within them, some concept of, of, of sitting with pain. And taking time and, and allowing pain there, and and it's just that when we go into something new, sometimes we attach to all the stuff that's new and forget what we already knew, and which the model absolutely requires us to do. But because it's not new to as new to us, people often neglect it. Um So, uh, so I think you're absolutely right to put that up there. They're making room for accepting. Uh, and remember, accepting in this kind of approach isn't some isn't isn't predominantly about accepting external reality. It's about accepting the presence of internal experience, accepting difficult thoughts, difficult feelings, difficult physical sensations. So yeah, it, it's doing that. Oddly enough, the thing that's the thing I've settled on in the last few years actually to focusing this bit on is is actually comes from grief. It comes from models of grief. I'm we'll talking a little bit about that towards the end of the book. Um But it's, um you know, some of the, as you know very well, some of the traditional models of grief have tended to have this kind of very sort of set sequential idea that, you know, this happens to you, then this happens to you. You kind of, you have denial, and then you have rage, and then you have whatever. We could do a whole conversation about those models and how people misunderstand the models or whatever, but anyway. Those are some of the traditional models of grief, but one of the most useful ones is what's sometimes called the two process or the dual process model of grief or the pendulum model of grief. And that's the idea that that people swing between two states, one of which is about being with the loss and getting used to the loss and sitting with the loss and feeling the pain of it. And the other one is about restoration. It's about trying to find out how am I going to build a new life given the reality of this loss? And the big sort of revelation to this, which isn't a revelation to the people who actually experience it, uh, that those two things are not sequential, that we swing between them all the time. And we might do more of the loss orientation stuff early after a big loss event and, and do more of the restoration things as we go forward. But even in the early days, after, say, a bereavement, you know, we're doing both. We're thinking about the person, thinking about the loss, Sorting out the bank account, organising for the funeral, looking through photographs and bursting into tears. And so we're swinging backwards and forwards between the two. And and the idea of this model is that we need both and we have to do both. And if we get stuck on one of those two islands, as it were, that's when we might need more help. So it's perfectly reasonable for us, if we talk about non-bereavement situations now, where... The other kinds of losses, like the loss of this chap, had to his ability to teach his son sea fishing. Absolutely, there there was going to be a what can we do about this, uh, and a moving forward that did end up with the, with the, them learning chess or teaching his son chess. But there also has to be that bit of and this sucks. This mm. is really sad, isn't it? And and funnily enough, the the bit about values we just touched on actually the in working with people, that's when I've got a values. Not in the restoration bit, I, I, I'll use it then, but I'd start off in the loss bit because we hurt where it matters. And for something, rather than just to be a bit of an irritation, for something to pierce us to their soul, to really fill us up, it probably means there's something that our values in play. So what was it? Why does it suck not to be able to do this? What's the worst thing about that? And I'm going to store that away. We might use that. For building an alternative. But initially, it's just no, go in, go closer into that pain. And it hurts because this is a link to the past, it's a link to my father's, link to my son. And it's been taken away from me by this wretched illness. Okay, let's sit with that. Let's sit with those feelings for a bit. And alongside that, and we're also going to think what else you can do. So it's not like two months of this and then two months of that. We're going to kind of move both forward simultaneously. But even in the midst of, in coming back and saying, actually, you know, the chest thing's working really well. i are really enjoying it. Yeah, okay. And let's just, you know, let's, let's almost uh, metaphorically have a moment's silence for the sea fishing still. It still sucks that you can't do that.
1: Yeah, and I think it comes back to this point of these things coexisting. And as you were talking there, I, I was reminded of when I started to take meditation seriously. And of course, like a lot of people, I misunderstood this idea of acceptance. So anytime I felt any difficult feelings or emotions I would have this sense of okay we need to sort of like ignore that and just accept the breath or accept the tranquility that meditation <laughs> is <Except> the <laughs> um, and it, you know on reflection I can see I was kind of moving in the, the wrong direction uh, and, and it it really is this I think it was one of your workshops actually that, that drives home this point and you've just mentioned it as well that acceptance of a situation is not about um, sort of either wanting it or desiring it or or even accepting external circumstances it's more about trying to allow room for whatever you're feeling because if you've just lost someone of course that's going to feel devastating and and just absolutely gutting and you know you're going to be filled with despair and all kinds of emotions that might be expected or unexpected um, you, you know, I mean, I've worked with some people uh, who are going through grief, who feel it's a bit too early because they're starting to feel gratitude, or joy and having um, a certain memory, for example, they should be feeling sad, or they should be feeling yeah. this other way. And so trying to work with this idea of whatever's there, it is there, you know, there's no should or shouldn't, it's, it's, it's simply there and, and, and can we make space for that. And I suppose um, as we come to the the, the end of our conversation, right? Um, maybe to touch on that point that we all deal differently with challenges and changes and grief, and and toward the end of the book, you you talk about the the practice of mindfulness as being one way that can help us find a, a quiet place in the eye of the storm. Um, and of course, mindfulness can be a bit of a loaded word nowadays because there's this idea that it's about you know, rising above something or transcending something or curing something. I I read an article um, by Mark Epstein. He was talking about the limitations of mindfulness and therapy. And he had this really nice, neat phrase where he said, mindfulness brings you to the table of your experience. And I really loved that idea because it's almost like you have to kind of sit down and be with it rather than kind of running off somewhere. You can come to your experience and then sort of see what you can do with it that the mindfulness itself doesn't actually solve or cure anything on its own and i'm just wondering if you can share some ideas on how we can accept the the different ways that we might deal with difficult moments in life and what are some of the ways mindfulness can uh, help in, in assisting us to navigate the storm well look this you know
2: this word mindfulness in the in the English language is you know, it's in the sense that we're using it is is a pretty recent arrival in the English language. Okay. And 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 it has been a part of wisdom and faith traditions for literally thousands of years. You know, they would have their own words that mindfulness is a partial translation of. And within all of those traditions that have been followed for so long, you know, there are so many aspects. There's a whole ecosystem of ideas and values and approaches of which this paying attention in the present moment bit, you know, is absolutely sort of networked in. And what we tend to talk about in sort of Western healthcare or Western sort of social psychological well-being as mindfulness clearly isn't all of that and shouldn't actually shouldn't be all of that. If we want all of that, there are, that already exists in the wisdom and faith traditions that produced it. And that's where you go look for it because those guys have been doing it for thousands of years. And there seem to be some common processes here that come from several directions that seem kind of useful when people start doing that. So it's not what is the active ingredient because it doesn't work like that. But it's rather saying this psychological approach has always been what's the function of this? What are we doing this for? So within this, when I'm talking about mindfulness, my question is not that mindfulness is sitting and eating one grape or listening to what sounds are available. Those are behaviours that could be in the service of lots of things. What are we asking people to do? And, and, and uh, you know, I often say that you, you can garden very mindfully, can't you? You can also be gardening whilst thinking about burying your boss, Now, that's not very (laughs) mindful. So the actual behavior doesn't tell you what it's for. Uh, You need to look at the context it's happening in and what the function or what the purpose of it is. And when I'm talking about this, I'm actually mainly talking about something relatively simple. Maybe simple isn't the same as easy. Relatively simple, but she's just noticing stuff more and particularly noticing the inside stuff more. So being a little bit more aware of here is a thought here is a feeling. Here is a physical sensation, and you say, "Well, of course we know that because they are the things that are plaguing us." But that we're not really noticing them. We're often in the middle of them. We're often surrounded by them. So getting better at just that little bit, standing back and noticing, "Oh, here's a thought. Here's my worry about I'm not going to be around to bring my kids up." God, that's a big thought, isn't it? And oh, God, here's the sadness welling up. So getting good at noticing that that frees us up in several ways. It enables us to not simply to evaluate them, but to notice their presence and notice their influence on our behaviour. And when I follow this up by avoiding, or I follow this up by kind of diving in and wallowing, that doesn't work so well. I lose connection with what's around me. If I can say it and say, yeah, no, no, this sucks. And when I breathe, I'm not breathing to get rid of it. I'm breathing to just make some room for it and carry it with me in the next step of my day whilst... I text a friend to ask how they're doing, and connect to my values in that way. Even with this, this pain and this sadness present, that's what I'm kind of trying to use mindfulness for. So, I'm noticing what's going on and what's going on around us, and then
1: what things follow, what other things in our lives, what works and what doesn't. I think that's a great note to end on, and I just want to say that as we were talking before the the discussion, now I had mentioned that facing the storm was for me reading through the book. Um, right from the start, especially when you're talking about resilience and how, you know, often that can be misconstrued and so on. And and here's maybe a better way to approach things. I really found the book to be, you know, like having a sort of compassionate consultant um, in your pocket or on your screen. And and I I really enjoyed how it's throughout the book, it, it provides really sort of practical, relatable sharing from yourself. Um, obviously, over sort of decades of, of of your work experience with people um, who are facing the most devastating kind of storms, and it's one in which I think that when people read it, they'll find an enormous amount of comfort in how you approach how to deal with life challenges, and at the same time, I think it will give them confidence. Um, first of all, that they're not the only one to to experience these difficulties because as I'm going through the book, I'm thinking, yeah, this is something that you know so many people experience, and, and also to to have that confidence of of trying things. And I think when you talk about the exercises and and, and the tips and advice that you share. It's done in a way that's, that's, that's really quite incremental and gentle and just try this and see how it goes. It, it never comes across as forceful or or kind of, you know, this is the answer, as, as you mentioned before. So it's a tremendous book just to read on its own. But if you are going through something difficult, um, which all of us will at some point, I would highly recommend that people pick up a copy because I think it's one that I'll certainly be referring back to time and time again. And just on a final note, Ray, um, I'm wondering what... you you might want to say to someone who is facing a real tough time at the moment and could perhaps pick up a copy of your book or, or even just how they might begin to make sense of what they're going through. I think what I would say
2: is if you pick up a book in response to it, that's already a sign that you're trying to do some of the, the thing that's going to help, which is this combination of how can I get my head around this? How can I make sense of it? Point one. And What can I do even in the face of this? And if you read through the book, my hope would be there might be some things that will help you on one or both of those, making sense of having stuff to do. And even if part of your response is, that's nonsense, that wouldn't work for me, the process of looking at that, understanding it, comparing it to your personal learning history, your style, your expertise in yourself, even the experience of saying, no, that's nonsense. I should do X instead. Maybe that too is shows you a path that's going to be useful to you.
1: Well, thanks for your your thoughts and insights, Rhys. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. And uh, yeah, I think this book, as well as being useful for people going through um, challenges and difficulties, I think it's a really helpful book for, for therapists as well um, to get an idea of how they can help people uh, through facing their storms. Well, thank you so much for asking me along. I've I've loved the
2: conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself. And take care.